welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you so much for your word. We just thank you that we have the confidence that when we open this book and read from it, that we're hearing the actual words of the living God. What an amazing treasure that we don't have to guess about who you are and what you're doing and what you love and what you desire of us. You've made it plain in this book. We're so thankful. And we're also thankful that as we open it, your Holy Spirit makes our hearts enlivened to it, gives us um, a desire for it, gives us a delight in it, gives us understanding in it. And we just pray that your spirit would come and, and do that work again. Do that work again tonight that you've been so faithful to do over and over and over again. And I just thank you, Lord, for this church, for these people. They seem like the best people ever to me. Just thankful for a body of people that want to understand your word, want to dig into your word, want to do the things that you've commanded. And we just pray, Lord, as we open it, that we would just come away with a just a profound sense of your goodness and your generosity especially as we see what you've done for us in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So between Easter and Ascension, there's a six-week period, and we're going through a series in that six weeks through Romans uh, 6, 7, and 8. And what we're looking at is how to walk in increasing freedom from habitual sin. And I gave you guys an acronym before, and I don't know if you're into that, but I'll give it to you again anyway. It's VIM, V-I-M. And what it does is it captures the things that we need to keep in mind as we're trying to live in increasing freedom from habitual sin. So the V is vision. We need to have a desirable vision for what God has actually given us in Christ. And we need to believe it. You know, when you read the first half of Romans 6, you're given this beautiful vision of what God has given us in Christ and how we can walk in increasing freedom from sin. And we have to see that and see it as desirable and want it. Okay, so that's vision. Then there's intention. We looked at that last week. That's the second half of Romans 6. If we're going to walk in freedom from habitual sin, we have to actually intend to do so. We have to want it. We have to really, what we're speaking of there is repentance. And the second half of Romans 6 is great for that. As you guys remember last week, so good at helping us to see, yes, sin is something we want to flee and holiness is something we want to live in. And then the M is means. And means just being like, we have to rely on the right power source. If we're going to walk in increasing freedom from habitual sin, we need to be relying on the right power source. And that's what we're going to look at these next two Sundays, this Sunday and next Sunday. This Sunday, we're going to be in Romans 7, and we're going to look at where that power source is not found. And spoiler, I'll just tell you ahead of time, it's not found in the power of the law or in your own power to change. And so let's take a look at those first six verses uh, of Romans 7 here. It gives us a nice recap of where we've been in Romans 6, and it gives us a really neat illustration. Take a look at verse 1 of Romans 7. Or do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers and sisters, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that you might bear fruit to God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members 
to bear fruit for death. But now we've been released from the law, and having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in a new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. What he's talking about here is just like death ends the obligations, the legal obligations of marriage, our death in Christ released us from the law's obligations. So we have died to the law. We're freed from it. Now, when we think about being freed from the law, it doesn't mean we're freed to be lawless, okay? Being freed from the law doesn't mean to be lawless. We looked at it before. That's not real freedom anyway. True freedom is to desire to do what is right and have the ability to do it. So lawlessness actually isn't freedom, and we looked at that last week, so I won't go over that. But being free from the law doesn't mean that we're lawless. It means that we've been freed from the earning that the law put before us. That the law was a standard before us that if you want to be right with God, you need to do this perfectly. And we've been freed from that. We've been freed from a need to try to earn our salvation. We've been freed from that bondage. And he gives this like really cool analogy. And the really cool analogy is, is that the law was like a first husband that had these exacting demands that you could never meet. It was just this terrible situation where this husband, he has these, these unattainable demands. And in Christ, we've died to that old husband so that we can be united to the second husband, which is Christ. And that husband is not full of all these demands. He's actually met all the law's demands. And the cool thing about that is, is that our love for Jesus, because of how wonderful he is, actually enables us to to love and serve him and do his commands in a way we never could have done for the law because we're doing it now out of love and joy in the gospel. And so tonight and next Sunday, we're going to look at where do we find the strength to actually love Christ with our lives? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, right? How do we find the strength to do that? This Sunday, we're going to look at where it's not found. It's not found in the law and it's not found in ourselves. If you look at the text, this is how it lays out. We're going to see that the law is no match for sin's power. That's verses 7 through 14. And then we're going to look at you are no match for sin's power. And that's verses 15 through 23. So the law is no match for sin's power. Don't rely on it for that. You are no match for sin's power. Don't rely on yourself. And there's really cool parenting implications here too. I know that I can always get people's attention when I say that. But there's really great parenting implications in this passage too. So first, the law is no match for sin's power. In fact, if you rely on the law as your strength to do what God's commanded, it might make things worse. Take a look at verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin died. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. Did that which is good then produce death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. What's he saying here? He's saying, you know, that the law is no match for sin's power, and it can actually make it worse if you rely on the law. And so what's going on? Well, if we rely on the power of the law, and what I mean by that is you just, you read God's commands and you say, I will do this. You know, I'm going to just know these commands and just knowing them, I've got this. 
right? That would be relying on the law's power. And if we do that, we'll find that actually sin can actually use the law against us, which is really interesting. You may have experienced this. Verse 8 says that sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So he finds out like, oh, I shouldn't covet. And then the more he thinks about that law, the more he thinks like, well, he's got nice stuff. And look at what they've got. You know, it produced covetousness. What's going on here? Well, he says here that that sin seized an opportunity. That's a military term. It means that sin can use the law as like a base of operations from which to attack you. Okay. One of the greatest stories I've heard of this before is uh, St. Augustine in his confessions. He said that when he was an unsaved kid, him and his friends used to like to go steal pears from a neighbor's tree. And he didn't even eat them. He fed them to pigs. He just liked breaking the law. He just liked the feeling of transgressing. Has have you ever felt that before? That just hearing God's law can sometimes stir up a desire to do that particular thing. And, and that's what he's saying here. And it's not that God's law is the problem. Sin is the problem. And what he's saying is that sin is such an evil thing. Sin is such a sinful evil thing that it can actually use the right and good and holy law of God to incite us to sin. That's pretty bad, right? I mean, if you can use something holy for sin, then that's, that's really bad. So sin can do that. And so that's why just knowing God's commands will not free you. It might even inflame your desire to go against God. Isn't that crazy? God's law, guys, is a blessing when we use it the right way. I know in a lot of church environments, the phrase, like, God's law is a negative thing. It's always like, oh, we're not under the law. You know, we don't love the law. Guys, God's law is a blessing when you use it rightly, Okay. Just like a lot of things in your life are, are good if you use it rightly. Like a weed whacker is a good thing if you don't use it to cut your hair. You know what I mean? Like things that are used the right way are good things. Well, what's the law for? What did God intend it for? Well, Reformed theology speaks of three uses of the law. So law is good for this. The law shows us what's right. That's super helpful. Okay? It's super helpful to know what's right. The law also shows us our need for Christ. As we try to do it and then we fail, we go, oh, I need Jesus. That is a wonderful blessing, okay? So those are two ways the law is a beautiful thing, wonderful thing. You just got to use it rightly, right? The law is good if you use it rightly. Shows us what's right, shows us our need for Christ. And then the third use of the law is that the law shows us once we've been saved by Christ, we can go back to his commands and his commands show us how to love him back, right? Because Christians, we obey God out of gratitude. We obey God because of what he's done for us. We obey God because we love him. We obey God because he's given us a desire to love him back. Just like Jesus said, if you, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so the third use of the law is really beautiful. That having been freed from the law as a way of earning, we can now use the law as a way to love God back. God's law is like his love languages. Okay? Those of you who are married probably have done the love language thing. And that can go disastrously wrong when you focus on your own. You're like, you're just not loving me the way... The book said, I want to be loved. Okay, that's not the way it was supposed to be used. You were supposed to use it to love the other person, but whatever. I got to tell you a funny thing, and you guys probably heard this before, but somehow the love language came up when we were in college ministry, and we had a bunch of guys and, and ladies, men and women in our small group. And this one guy, he goes, he goes, have you guys studied love languages? And we're like, yeah, kind of. And he goes, mine's physical touch. And we were like, okay. <laughs> like, we weren't really sure, like, what are we supposed to do now? But anyway, so the law is like, uh, it just came to mind. Sometimes that's not a good idea. But uh, not in the notes. Move on. Um, but the law is like God's love languages. 
You know, you're so thankful for what he's done for you in Christ. You're so thankful how he loves you. And you go like, how can I love you back? And that's what God's commands are. It's like, well, this is what, how I receive love. And we're like, oh, great. That's so good and helpful to know. So guys, the law was never intended to save you or free you from sin. It was never intended to justify you, to save you. It was never intended to sanctify you, free you from sin. It wasn't intended for those. It was intended for three things. Show you what's right, show your need for Christ, show you how to love him back. Was never meant to save you or free you. Okay, the first five chapters of Romans is all about like the law wasn't meant to save you. This section saying like the law wasn't meant to free you either. The law just shows you what's right. Let me give you an example this way. The gospel relates to the law the way a locomotive relates to train tracks. So the law are the tracks, okay? I'm talking third use of the law. We want to love God back, right? So the law are the tracks. The tracks show us the way we should go, but the tracks give you no power to go there. They just show you where to go. The locomotive is the thing that pushes you along. And so the way it works is the law shows you the right way to go, and then it's joy in the gospel that propels you down God's law. It propels you along. It gives you the ability to live God's commandments. As the Spirit causes the love of God that you see in the gospel to like stir up your heart with joy, it propels you, you know, like a steam engine, like that joy of seeing God's love for you propels you, causes you to want to move forward and live for him. And so it's about train tracks, locomotive. Uh, let me give you a practical example, guys, of how we might just rely on the law alone instead of the gospel. So Paul gives an example here, and it's covetousness, or some people say covetousness. I'm not even sure if I'm saying it right. I started to worry about it this week. But it's covetousness. It's probably one of the top three sins of our culture that you're unaware of, okay? And it's one of the reasons why people are usually 40% happier four days after they quit social media. Did you realize you could be 40% happier in four days? I could sell this, but it's not a thing I could sell. Okay, it's covetousness, right? We see what other people want and we want it, right? We look at our family and our friends and coworkers and people at church, and we see the things they have. We see their possessions and, and their positions and their relationships, and, and we think about how much we want this. And we don't even really like fully recognize this as a sin, which is crazy. I mean, think of how often we probably stir up covetousness in other people without even knowing it. And think of how often you know our misery probably stems from covetousness. Covetousness is actually a symptom of idolatry, right? There's symptoms that we have when we're covetous. It's, we have to be on guard from it. It's toxic, right? It's about idolatry. Covetousness shows us that there's something other than God that's become our functional God, the thing we truly delight in, the thing we truly trust in. Covetousness is breaking the whole law, right? Because the whole law is contained in love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Covetousness is breaking the whole law. So I want you to know something. I want you to see what I just did there, okay? What I just did there was use the law, and it was good. I mean, it's helpful, right? The law is certainly helpful. What I did is I showed you your sin clearly, that it was offense to God. There was something that you may not even recognize you're doing, and the law showed you that you're doing something. It showed you it may even be a pattern in your life, something you need to repent of. The law can even show you that, man, it'd be a really good thing if I loved people and God more so that I didn't covet their stuff and their their lives. The law is really, really good for that. Really good for that. And it's a good thing, right? But the law has no ability to make you stop coveting. In fact, that's what Paul said, right? He said it made it worse. That there was something about focusing on the commandment without any power behind it that made things worse for him, okay? So I'm not saying we don't want the law. We want that. It's like an x-ray. You want an x-ray? Do you want an MRI? Do you want to know what the problem is? 
That's what the law does. But nobody cures diseases with MRIs, right? And, and the mirror, you know, it shows you where the changes need to occur. But nobody changes their appearance by a mirror, right? The law does it. It does it really well. If you rely on the law only, then Romans 7 is going to be where you're going to be stuck. So what would free us from something like the grip of covetousness in comparison? I think the thing that would free us is the gospel, right? The gospel would free us. And when we see how Christ compared himself to us, it's going to free us from comparing ourselves to others. Let me explain. Christ compared his life to yours, right? Not for the point of envying you. Not for the point of being covetous. Why? He saw his great possessions in heaven. He saw his glory in heaven. He saw the pleasures he had at God's right hand. He saw the perfect relationship that he had with the Father. And then he looked at you and he saw that you had none of that. He saw that you had none of that. In fact, he saw that you were an enemy of God, that you were soon to lose all the good things you've ever had and that you would be under God's wrath forever. He made a comparison, just like we do with people. He made a comparison, but what did it drive him to do? It drove him to trade places with us. He traded places with you. Jesus took your condemnation before God. On the cross, Jesus took your undesirable position to give you his perfect position. And he did that at the cross. Guys, at the cross, we can see how unbelievably generous God is to us. Unbelievably generous. Because when we're covetous, we think God's being stingy with us, right? Romans 8 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And when we look at the cross, we see that God is unbelievably generous to us. God gave us his own son. He's not stingy. I don't know about you guys, but if you were going to be stingy with somebody, that wouldn't be, you know, that's, that's not stingy. Give up your own child. I mean, I wouldn't give up my kids for you guys. God did for you guys. It's amazing. He's so generous. And it's at the cross, guys, that we can be sure that God is right now giving us everything that would actually be good for us at this moment in our lives. Right? When we look at the cross, we see the generosity of God. We can be absolutely sure that God is giving us every single good thing that would be good for us at this moment. Isn't that amazing? It's so amazing. And that, guys, that's what would free you. That's what does free us from the grip of comparison and covetousness. And it frees us in a way the law can't. The law just says, you shall not covet. Okay? And that's helpful. That shows me my sin. But the gospel comes in and just dislodges that thing. Like a bad tooth, you know? Gospel comes in, it kind of wiggles it back and forth and pulls it right out. And you're like, I feel free. Maybe that's gross. Okay, we're moving on. <laughs> Guys, while the law is no match for sin's power, the gospel is. And it's the gospel that breaks the power of sin in your lives. And that's why you need to fill your life with the gospel all the time, right? There's this little poem. It's credited to John Bunyan. It probably wasn't John Bunyan, but it's more fun to say it was his. So it goes this way. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Now you guys thought about Red Bull there. This was before that. Let me read it to you again. Run, John, run, the law commands, and it gives us neither feet or hands. How many of you guys have experienced that? The law is like, this is what you need to do. And it gives you no ability to do it. It's a blessing for it to show you. But it gives you no ability to do it. And then far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. It actually has more demands on our life, right? The gospel has more demands on our life and gives us the ability to live it. Parents, what source of power are you encouraging your kids to look to? 
What source of power are you encouraging your kids to look to? So think about your parenting. And this varies with their complexity and their age and stuff. But think about what you're telling them to look to for power. Now, you need to give them God's commandments. It's a huge blessing. First use of the law, right? It shows us what's right. Second use of the law. It shows us our need for Christ. Your kids need that, right? Then it shows them how to love God in response, which is the third use of the law. They need to know God's commandments. They need to have the train tracks. And it's such a blessing, guys. I mean, even if you're terrible at parenting like I am, the fact that your kids grew up knowing God's word is amazing and will make up for all of the terrible ways you've done it, okay? Like, they have so much advantage. How many of you guys didn't grow up with that? You didn't grow up with that at all? Just think about what your kids have. It's amazing. So don't beat yourself up. But I just want to say, give them the locomotive too, okay? Don't just give them the tracks. You have to give them the locomotive of the gospel. You have to disciple them and show them God's commands and help them to practice them until they can do it on their own. But you also need to give them the power of the gospel to push them along. And so we've got lots of resources for that. If you go on our library page, if you look on the email, my wife has like put together a ton of great children's books that would help you kind of bring the gospel to bear on your parenting. Marcelo back there has written a book, Parenting is Discipleship, which is amazing. Just the title is helpful. If you just bought the book and put it out where you can see the title, it would help you a ton. It would probably help you 40% better in four days. But um, parenting is discipleship. That tells me I need to give them both the tracks and the locomotive, you know? There's no way you would disciple an adult sometimes the way we parent, right? You know? You're sitting across the table from a guy at Starbucks, and he says, hey, you know, I did this and that. And you go, you need to knock it off. And he's like, I know. That's why I mentioned it to you. No, I'm serious. You better do it now. Okay? Like, that's important to do. Um, weird to an adult. But then we need to give them the power of the gospel to show them how to do it. Okay, so... The law is no match for sin's power. Secondly, you are no match for sin's power. This is one we have a hard time believing. There's a dramatic change in tone here, guys, in Romans 7 compared to Romans 6. Check it out. Take a look at verse 14. You guys, I'm sure, have seen this before. Romans 7, 14. Think about what Romans 6 sounds like as I read this. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Everybody experience that? Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good, so it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I don't want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Okay, if you guys remember chapter 6, especially two weeks ago, this is way more pessimistic. Okay, this seems like a totally different tone. And this has created some issues. People go like, okay, Romans 6, talking about like you're, you're united to Christ, and you're free from sin, and you don't have to be in bondage to any particular sin. And then Paul brings this out. And he's saying it first person, and he's, you know, making it out to be his experience. What do we make of this? There's been a few different attempts to kind of reconcile these two in our own minds. They're totally reconciled on their own, but we're trying to figure it out. And the first one is, is some people say, well, Romans 6 is the Christian's experience, Romans 6. 
And then Romans 7 is kind of the experience of somebody before they came to Christ. This is an unbeliever. And Paul's kind of acting it out, but it's not meant to be a Christian's experience because, you know, they don't really fit together real well. And so Romans 7 is a picture of a non-Christian. And there's certainly many good arguments for this, and I don't have the time to go through it. I saw Piper did like six weeks on this. We're not doing that. Okay, I think it'd be great. Listen to him. So what's going on here? Well, there's a lot of good arguments that it is not a Christian. Okay, and there are great scholars that hold that. For example, like Douglas Moo, he has this insane commentary that keeps growing. He believes that. I respect him. I think it's a respectable view. But I'm not finally convinced, and I'll tell you why. I don't think that non-Christians generally feel like Romans 7. I don't think they're generally like, oh, man, I love God's law. I totally like to do it, but I just can't. And that certainly wasn't Paul's pre-conversion experience. He thought he was pretty awesome. If you read in Philippians and stuff, he was like, I was doing it. I was awesome. You know, that's what he thought of himself before he was a Christian. Of course, as soon as he saw Jesus on the road, he found himself to not be awesome very quickly. Okay, so I'm not convinced of it because I don't think that that is typical. This really does sound like a Christian's inner war. How many of you, when I read that, you were like, oh, yeah, I've been there. And you were there after you became a Christian, right? You're like, okay, this totally sounds, this sounds like my life. This sounds like where I've been. And so I don't think we can say it's a non-Christian. Another way that people have thought of this is that this describes the normal Christian life. I think the problem with that view is that it seems so contradictory to Romans 6. I mean, it's, it, read it at home, read them next to each other, and you'd be like, what happened here? One chapter apart. You know, it sounds totally different. Romans 6 tells us that we're united with Christ, and that means that we're dead to sin and we're alive to God. And if we believe that and live out of that, that we don't have to be enslaved to any particular sin. So I don't think Romans 7 is, is how we should set the expectations of the Christian life. And I, I know a lot of people who have, you know, especially kind of like I talked about before, like in men's ministries and stuff, some guys will start talking, somebody confesses porn and they're like, oh yeah, that's just the way it is. And, you know, everybody does it. And it's like, no, we don't all do it. I don't do it. It's something that's not acceptable. This isn't a place we can live, right? We need to be free from these things. And so what's going on? You know, what's the solution? I think the solution is, is that what Paul's doing is he isn't describing a non-Christian's life and he isn't describing the normal, healthy Christian life. I think what he's describing is that what we can expect if we rely on our own power in the fight for sin. The reason why you and I and all of us go, yes, I've been in Romans 7 many times is because we have done that. We have tried to live God's commandments in our own strength. And when we do, Verses 14 through 23 are exactly what our life's going to sound like, right? That's what I believe this text is to do, is to show us what we can expect if we rely on our own strength to fight habitual sin. A couple of things to notice. Uh, take a look at verses 14 through 23 and circle every time you see the word I. It's over and over again. I this, I that, I this, I that. Another thing to notice in this text is the absence of any mention of the Holy Spirit. So what it seems to me in these verses is it's just Paul and sin in the ring together, and he's getting beaten up over and over and over again. This is him relying, when he has fallen into places where he relies on his own strength. Paul did that too, by the way. We all do it, right? None of us are immune to trying to live for God out of our own strength. And what we can expect when we do that is constant defeat. And so Paul's acting this out in a beautiful like first-person way. Guys, you and I on our own are no match for sin because we have an enemy within us. That's what this text says. Like, you're not alone in there. You have the Holy Spirit, but there's some 
thing else in there. And it's an enemy. It's the flesh. There's a war going on inside of you. You and I, since we've become Christians, are divided people. There's a, a fight in there. There's a division. You have your inner redeemed self that really wants to live for God, loves God's law, really wants to honor Christ. And then you have this other thing in you, this evil thing, this inner enemy. Let's take a look at those two parts. Okay, first, your redeemed inner self. If you're a Christian, you have this true inner redeemed self that is dead to sin and alive to God. Everything in Romans 6 applies to that, right? You have this inner self. That's the real you, by the way, okay? That's the real you. The real you is that inner self that verse uh, 15 says hates sin. That true inner self of yours is redeemed in Christ. Verse 16 agrees with the law. It, verse 18 has the desire to do what is right. In, in verse 19, it says that you want to do what is good and you don't want to do what is evil. And then verse 22, which I think is the best, it says it, that you delight in the law of God in your inner being. Okay, so if you're a Christian, you have this inner redeemed self that loves God's law, wants to do God's law, even delights in the commandments. When, you, when you're in a good place and you're not fleshly and you're reading God's commands, you're like, yes, please. Like, if I could just get an injection of this, that would be great. I was talking to a friend, and we were talking about free will and all kinds of exciting things like that. And he goes, we were talking about free will predestination. And he goes, he's like, I wish I didn't have free will. You know, he's like, if he could just like fix this, you know, this, this constant battle, like, please do. If there was a, pull it out and, and, and get rid of it, it'd be great. And he will, by the way, in our resurrected bodies, he's going to remove that. Not that we want free will, but we're not going to have this, this second thing that I want to describe. You not only have an inner redeemed self, but you also have an inner enemy. Okay. You have an enemy that lives within you. This is very inconvenient. Look at verse 14, the flesh sold under sin. Or verse 17 says that it's sin that dwells in you. Verse uh, 20 says the same thing. You have a sin that dwells in you. Verse 21 says the evil lies close at hand. I find that incredibly creepy, right? The evil lies close at hand. I mean, you think about Cain and you think about how God said evil is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. What Paul's saying is like, it's worse than that. Evil's inside. There's something inside. Look at verse 23. It says that the law of sin dwells in your members. So Paul's not saying here that the physical body, when we talk about the flesh, Paul's not saying the physical body is evil. That would be Platonism, not Christianity. Paul is saying that your body is inhabited by something evil so that it makes it a body of death. Okay? So there's this other power, this power of sin, the flesh, your enemy, it's inside of you. And, and we all know what that's like, guys. I mean, any one of you Christians, you know what it's like to obey the flesh, to be acting fleshly, to be having that parasite, you know, run the show for the day, you know, and you realize at the end of the day, you're like, oh man, that was totally the flesh. And I totally thought I was right. And I wasn't right. And I've been, you know, just deceived again, right? Your worst enemy, guys, is always within you, not outside of you. I think that's one of the most important things you can know <laughs> is your worst enemy is in you, you know, in, in your marriage, in your time at work, in all the places of your life to know that your worst enemy is inside of you. Guys, we live in a cultural season where we seem to want to all focus on the sins of others. Okay, maybe it was always that way, but it's real obvious now. We want to focus on the sins of others and the danger that others pose. And all that focus, guys, is strange for Christians because we should really be a lot more interested in the enemy that's within us than the enemy that's outside of us. You know, all that focus seems to be 
towards like trying to identify what's the next greatest threat to my family? What's the next greatest threat to the church? Guys, newsflash, I'm the greatest threat to this church. I'm the greatest threat to my family. And so are you. You are the greatest threat to this church and you are the greatest threat to your family, right? It's our enemy within. You know, you think about all the enemies outside. If the church is going to be destroyed, we will have done it. It's not like somebody's going to come in and like, you know, destroy it from the outside. No, we'll do it. If our family's going to be destroyed, we will have done it. The enemy, our greatest enemy is inside. You know, it's like those horror movies when they realize like the monster's inside the house, right? Except the house is you, you know, and it's inside. So notice a few things here about the flesh. Notice that the flesh, this sin, this is really cool, guys. It's no longer your identity. Did you notice how Paul distances himself in a way? It's in him, but it's not him. He goes, I want to do the law. I want to do what's right. I'm struggling to follow Christ, but I find this thing in me that keeps on attacking me. So what's really cool, guys, is, you know, now that you're a Christian, your identity is not the flesh. Your identity is not sin. The real you is that redeemed inner person that wants God. The flesh, the power of sin, isn't your identity. It's your enemy. Just happens to be awfully close to you. Okay? just happens to be awfully close to you, but it's very important to realize that sin is not your identity, it's your enemy. There's a war within you, and it's a war you have to fight. And notice this about the flesh. It's way stronger than you, okay? Sin is way stronger than you. Take a look at this. If you try to go up against sin in your own strength, you will lose. That's really what I think this chapter is helping us with. If you go up against sin in your own strength, you will lose. Look at verse 15. I do not do what I want. Anybody can relate to that? Verse 18, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Jesus would say, amen. Verse 19, I do not do the good I want to do. Verse 23, it makes me captive to the law of sin. Notice that the solution to this vicious cycle is not you. Battling sin, the solution is not you. The solution is the one person that is not mentioned in this passage, the Holy Spirit. We're going to dig into that next week, the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us, because we can live in Romans 6. But the Holy Spirit's mentioned back in verse 6 of this chapter. It's mentioned in, he is mentioned in verse 8, and sorry, in chapter 8, but he's absent in this section of defeat. And what Paul wants to show us is that this is what we can expect when we strive in our own power. And this is so different than what the culture tells you. You know, some of you guys might be very influenced by people on Instagram influencers and stuff like that that'll tell you happy thoughts about your life and kind of get you pumped up. And what they're going to tell you is you have the power within yourself to change yourself, right? That's what they all say. That's what New Age says. That's what all these kind of self-help gurus say is you have the power within yourself to heal yourself. And Paul's like, nope, you don't. You don't. He knows the insufficiency of the power of ourselves to fight the enemy within us. Trying to fight sin, guys, I was thinking this illustration. I'll show you what it looks like when you try to fight the power of sin yourself. So this is you, and it looks like this, okay? Like, so if you're, like, consistently failing in your, in your battling of sin, this may be the way you're getting your power, okay? I wish this worked. I wish this worked in all of life. It doesn't. Okay. As remember the words of Jesus, he said this, Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's why I said Jesus would say amen to that. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. So whilst you are no match for sin's power, guys, the Holy Spirit, who is God, is more than a match for the power of sin in your life, and he will break it as you rely upon him. 
Let me ask you this, parents. What source of power are you pointing your kids to? Are you pointing them to keep God's commandments in their own strength? This one stings a little bit more probably, right? Are you are you pushing them to obey God's law in your own strength? I had a, I have a vivid memory of this. We were uh, in our minivan, which is where most sanctification takes place. And a lot of times on the way to church. And so we're driving along in the van and um, one of our kids was kind of instigating fights with the other. And I just remember repeatedly saying like, you have to stop you have to knock that off, which is totally appropriate. Okay. Stop fighting. Knock that off. Knock that off. Wouldn't happen. And then there's the, you know, I'm going to pull over and I'm going to spank you. Right? Totally appropriate. Right. There should be some threat to this. To which eventually I heard from the back row, I can't. Okay. I can't. I can't stop fighting. Okay. This is a very theologically important moment. Okay. What you say next says a lot about what you believe about how we fight habitual sin. Your kid just said they can't. What do you say? You could say, you can and you better, or I'm going to pull over and spank you. What did that tell them? It's not the way you would have encouraged anyone else to fight from slavery to sin, would you? Say, you got this? (laughs) No, right? The other option you could say is that, hey, I am glad you see that. I'm glad to see that you can't do it. What I want you to do right now, and it's super important, buddy, because I am going to pull over and spank you if this doesn't work out. What you need to do is you need to pray right now. I want you to just be quiet. I want you to pray. I want you to ask God to help you obey. Ask God to bring the Holy Spirit to bear in this situation because you will get consequences if not. This is, there is threat to this, but you can only obey if Christ gives you the power to, and you need to reach out to him. That's the way we would encourage each other. And that's what we need to do for them. Guys, none of us is a match for the power of sin. We need the Holy Spirit. We do and our kids do. So let me close in this. Are you desperate enough to surrender your life to Jesus? You actually have to be fairly desperate to surrender your life to anyone. We do, especially, right? We're Americans. We are very self-sufficient people. We're very optimistic people. Didn't get them this time. I'll get them next time. Yeah. And we're also, we idolize freedom. I mean, all that talk of being slaves to God and stuff like that, that rubs right against our inner American core, right? We have to be pretty desperate to come to Jesus. The only way you're going to surrender is if you really believe that you're no match for your sin. Nothing will change until you're brought to the end of yourself. And many of us have been there, right? You've been in situations in your life where God brought you to the very end of yourself. And that's when you surrender your life. Look at what Paul says, verse 24, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? (laughs) That's desperation. That's where we need to be. That's where we need to be all the time. This isn't a one-time thing. We need to have this all the time. Who will deliver me from this body of death? You know, when you see that the law can't save you, and the law can't free you, and you can't save yourself, and you can't free yourself, guys, the lordship of Jesus then sounds like really good news. You do need a lord. You do need a master. You do need somebody to come in and save you and free you. Look at verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Guys, only then are you ready to live in the new way of the Spirit. That desperate state of mind, guys, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be like just your conversion experience. This is all the time. We should be praying prayers like, we can pray a prayer based on Romans 7. You know, I know your commandments and I delight in them, and, but I know I can't do anything apart from you. I have, I have no power in myself to fight this sin. Only you can give me true spiritual life. Only you can come into my body and cause me to obey you. You know, we could pray prayers like, take control, deliver me, live through me. You know, I, one I like is, 
Lord, I'm going to have to see a manifestation of the Holy Spirit like right now if I'm going to change. And you know what? He loves to answer prayers like that. So if you come to an end of yourself, if you have, you're ready to receive freedom and forgiveness in Christ. He's purchased both for you on the cross. Ask him. He always answers that prayer. If tonight, if you're not a Christian and you're realizing that you need both forgiveness and freedom, he will answer that prayer if you just ask him for it tonight. If you are a believer and you just feel completely stuck and you reach out to him tonight, he will set you free. And I would say there are no quick fixes. And I would say confess it to a friend. Come up with a plan to battle it. If it's something you've been dealing with for a long period of time, like grab a Christian friend, but go forward in the hope that he'll set you free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your uh, just amazing word. We thank you for just this uh, openness that Paul had here of just showing his own experience of just trying to fight it out, finding it not working over and over and over again. We just thank you for that. We, we relate to that. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to more and more not rely on ourselves, but to rely on your spirit, that we would just call out to you. In the moment, when we're feeling anger, when we're feeling bitterness, when we're feeling lust, when we're feeling covetous, when we're feeling just immensely sad, immensely fearful, that we would reach out and just say, Lord, fill me, move through me. Lord, I thank you for these people that love you so much and they want to give their whole lives to you. And I pray, Lord, that you give them the desire of their hearts. Because in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I love that verse. It really stuck out to me tonight. Verse 12, it says, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And yet the law doesn't save us. And that's what we get to celebrate now with communion. We get to celebrate the one who does save us. And we get to celebrate that gift of his broken body and his um, shed blood for us. So, man, amen. So good. Well, there are a few names, uh, again, that the Bible gives um, to what we're about to do. It's called the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, Communion, Holy Communion, the Eucharist, Breaking of Bread. And these are all names that come from different passages where it's talked about. And tonight, I just kind of want to focus on that term, the Lord's Supper, it's something that Paul calls this that we're about to do together. And it would have been especially meaningful for those those early first Jewish believers uh, and followers of, of Jesus who, like Paul, would not only by this meal remember Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, but they would also remember that Passover meal. And they would remember the, the night that Jesus spent with his disciples in that that last Passover meal that he ate with them. And it's a celebration of God's deliverance from their slavery, from their bondage, right? And and yet Jesus is that new and better Passover lamb. So his death not only allows God's judgment to pass over sin, but it also sets us free from that bondage of sin. And I just wanted to read it was that last Passover meal in, in Matthew 26 where Jesus told his disciples this. He said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink all of it. For this is my blood of the covenant, which was poured out for many 
for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And we remember during communion, we remember this the body that was broken for our sin. We remember the blood that was shed and spilled to forgive us of our sins. And if you're here tonight and if you're trusting in that sacrifice of Jesus, then we would invite you to take it with us. And for the kids too, we, tr- we just trust that you parents have, have talked to your kids about what communion means and what it is. And then it's not just a snack time, but it's them participating with us in, in uh, remembering Jesus, remembering that uh, the forgiveness of sins. So go ahead and take that bread. And this is out of, and this is what Paul told um, his his first followers in the Corinthian church, he said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us eat the bread together. Uh, And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the cup together. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the law. Thank you for showing us what's right. Thank you for showing us what it means to follow you and to please you. And Lord, thank you for showing us that we need Jesus. And we're so thankful that we get to remember this each week uh, in in this way, in in taking this this bread and this cup together. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.